Okay, Psalm 14. Psalm 14. And I have the New American Standard Bible. And uh, let's read these words. For the choir director, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? Who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call on the Lord. There they are in great dread. For the Lord is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. But the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. There are a couple of divisions that we can make in the psalm, maybe even three, but clearly in verses 1 through 3, there is a statement about the foolishness of living without God. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. The foolishness of living without God is stressed in those first few verses. And then in verses 4 through 6, if we do not include verse 7, it says the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. The Lord is with the generation of the righteous. And then verse 7, Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. Now, you might divide that up a little differently. Uh, I understand if you would include all of verses 4 through 7 in one section, but but that is uh, a good breakdown of the chapter. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Uh, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord is looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Now, one of the key words in this psalm uh, is is one word, and I demonstrate that just by writing the word up there in Hebrew, but that's one word. But it's translated, there is not, or there is none. And it's used four times in the first three verses. It's used in 14.1 to say... There is no God. The first part, there is no God. This word is used. That is this man's assessment of God. There is no God. God's assessment in 14.1 is there is none who do good. Man says there's no God. God says there's none who does good. In verse uh, 3, this phrase is used again. Uh, The Bible says uh, they have all turned aside. Uh, Together they have become corrupt. There's no one. There's no one who does good. 
Again, it's the same one, same word. There's no one who does good. And the next phrase, not even one. So this man who does not believe in God is answered to some degree by God who doesn't believe in the goodness of man. There's no one who does good, the text says. But that's just a way that to summarize some of the important teaching there. Let's look at this psalm and break it down. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Now, do you remember a man in the Bible whose name, you remember the story and his name seems to indicate foolishness? Jason, you're shaking your head. And that means um, who? Who are we talking about? Nabal in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 25. His wife says to David, he is rightly named. For he is Nabal and he is a fool. And that's nice that his wife could say that about him. Uh, But uh, Nabal is a foolish person and that name indicates fool. This is not a word for fool that is extremely common. It's used like 20, 25 times in the Old Testament. But some of the places where it's used, it's used, for example, in Isaiah or 2 Samuel 13, 13, 2 Samuel 13, 13, where Amnon rapes Tamar and Tamar says, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. It is a fool who does such a foolish thing and rapes his half-sister. Also, Isaiah uh, 32, verse 6, uses this particular word for fool. It's used uh, several other passages, uh, but here are some of them that use this word fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. Now understand what I'm about to say is not to defend atheism. It's not to defend it. But in the ancient Near East, as the New International Commentary uh, on Psalms said, in the ancient Near East, there was nothing akin to the atheist concept of the spiritual realm. You couldn't have found anybody in the ancient Near East who did not believe in God, nor the spiritual realm. You might say that would be more convicting to the atheist instead of less convicting. But the people who are described are not people who would necessarily deny the existence of God. They're not people who would stand in debate and affirm against a believer that there is no God. These are people who probably would affirm there is a God. Who would know that God was credited with great things in Israel's past. But they live as if there is no God. They don't make decisions in light of who He is. They don't alter their plans for taking His will into consideration. And they do not realistically think that they will give an account to Him one day. When James said in James 4, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city, and we'll continue there here and buy and sell and get gain. He said, You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Those people that James is talking to are people like this. They make their plans with no consideration of God. They make their plans, they lay the groundwork for their decisions, but they're not taking God into consideration. And the Bible tells us 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This may be us. We may not take the reality of God into consideration. And by the way, a fool doesn't necessarily indicate someone who doesn't have knowledge and understanding. But it's a person who doesn't live in light of the proper knowledge of reality. The ultimate reality is God. And we must reckon with that in all that we do. Now, let's look at some examples in the Psalms where we've seen people living like this. Particularly look back to Psalm 10. In Psalm 10. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So the wicked isn't taking God into consideration. He isn't living in consideration of God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In verse 11 of Psalm 10, he says to himself, God has forgotten He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Psalm 10 and verse 11. And verse 13. Why has the wicked spurred God? He has said to himself, you will not acquire it. You will not seek it. The point in all those verses from Psalm 10 is the wicked is living in such a way as to eliminate all consciousness of God. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in books outside the Psalms. Remember how the king of Assyria says in 2 Kings 19 verses 10 through 13. Do you think your God is going to deliver you? That's what the gods, that's what the nations, the other nations, the other cities said. That's what the people of Samaria said. Their gods were not able to deliver their people. Why do you think your God is going to be able to deliver you from my hand? 2 Kings 19 verses 10 through 13. In Daniel 3 and verse 15, the Bible tells us there that Daniel said, or Nebuchadnezzar says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what God is able to deliver from my hand. All of these people were living as if there was no greater reality than themselves and their power and their nation. And they were shown to be fools in all those cases. And let's not live that way. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, contrast this with what Proverbs 1, 7 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's foolish to deny the reality of God and not to build your life around that reality. It is foolish. The foundation on which to build your life is God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible says they are corrupt. That word is used both in verse 1 and verse 3. They are corrupt. Do you remember? That's a description of the pre-flood world in Genesis chapter 6. In verses 11 and 12. In Genesis 6... Verses 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted his way on the earth. This word corrupt is used to describe the great evil of man, which led to the flood. By the way, it's interesting. That the word translated corrupt is not only used to describe man's sin, but is also used to describe God's judgment on sin. And it's translated by the word destroy in Genesis 6 verse 
13, Genesis 6, verse 17. So the same word used to describe sin is used to describe the judgment upon sin. So they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Abominable. That is uh, a word that should strike us with horror. One writer defined it as that which is dangerous, that which is grotesque, that which is out of place, that which is repulsive. It could be something like the Egyptians who regarded it as an abomination to eat with the Hebrews in Genesis 43 verse 32. But it usually refers to some kind of moral act. It's totally out of place and totally repulsive. The fool says in his heart there is no God and their theology or their lack of theology has affected their behavior. It has affected their behavior. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. And God says there is no one who does good. No one who does good. Now, you might can argue, and I understand that there are people that you have seen who are bad people who do good things. We like to say there's good in every person. And I believe to some degree that is true. The evil people do good for God's glory. Do they do all they do to the glory of God? I think that is the perspective from which the writer comes. They are corrupt. They have done abominable deeds. They do not do good. And the Bible says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. Now, they have said God's not involved in daily life. God's looking down in verse 2 is to some degree an answer to that. God is involved in daily life, in the daily world. And He looks down from heaven upon the sons of men. Do you remember that phrase is used in Genesis 11 verse 5 when God looked down from the tower, uh, when man was building the Tower of Babel or Genesis 18.21 when God looked down at the deeds of Sodom and Gomorrah. God is pictured here as looking upon man to see if any understand to see if any seek God. God is looking, is there anybody who gets it? Is there anyone who gets it among men? Is there anyone who understands? Is there anyone who is seeking God? We can look up at the heavens and see there has got to be a God who made it. You know, if we know there's someone who made these chairs, even if we don't know who that was, even if we've never been to the factory where it was done, you mean you can't look at this universe and say something had to make it? Are people coming to the conclusion there must be a Creator and we must seek Him passionately? Are people coming to that conclusion? Now that's the purpose for which we were created according to Acts 17, verse 26 and 27, that they should seek after Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. God created us for that purpose. In Second Chronicles 7.14, If this my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face... But this psalm says we're not doing that. And you notice too in that phrase, sons of men, that was used earlier in verse 2, doesn't limit this search to Israel. It's looking all over the globe for these people. In verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Now, 
Lord willing, later we'll talk a little bit about the use of this passage uh, in the New Testament. But right now, do any of you have any questions about that? Any questions, any thoughts? Has this been a kind of idea that's come up a little bit recently? And these Psalms, I grant it, you may have forgotten because uh, it's been a while. But uh, look at Psalm 12.1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. The faithful disappear from among the sons of men. There's nobody godly left. There's nobody faithful in the world. So we see that. But on the other hand, look at Psalm 15. Psalm 15, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Psalm 15 the writer of Psalm 15 has he met? The writer of Psalm 14? David's the author of both. So I suppose he has. Uh, but so you see that this Psalm, these Psalms have discussed the fact that the wicked seem to be everywhere, but they also discuss the possibility of the righteous. Um, in this psalm itself, does this psalm allow for the existence, Psalm 14, does it allow for the existence of righteous people? Okay. If you're shaking your head, yes. How, what would you give as evidence of that? Verse 5. Okay. Verse 5, God is with the righteous generation. Pretty good evidence. I would say. Um, notice also, yes, Claudia? Verse 4, verse yes, in verse 4, they're my people. In verse 7, his captive people. Speaking of uh, the people in third person, his captive people, or from God's perspective. But yes, my people in verse 4, a righteous generation in verse 5, his captive people in verse uh, 7. Apparently there are some of these people who have made the Lord their refuge in verse 6. So this psalm seems to distinguish between the wicked and the righteous. It distinguishes between them. Now look back at Psalm 11, verses 4 and 5. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So there, just like in verse 2, the Lord is looking down from heaven. But I wanted you to notice in 11.5, the Lord sees the righteous and the Lord sees the wicked. And so we have that kind of distinction in Psalm 14. Psalm 14, 1 through 3 has been all negative, pictured the wicked, pictured ungodliness. It has uh, pictured that, but beginning in 14 and verse 4, uh, the text is going to show us the existence of righteous people. But But we as God's people, if we are to be my people, if we are to be the righteous generation then we have to live in the midst of a world of ungodliness. Is that easy? No, it's not uneasy. As some of us, it's easier than others. In some parts of the world, it's easier than others. And I'd say we're all beneficiaries of that. But it's not easy. In verse 4, do all the let's read four through seven. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? Who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord. 
There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. The workers of wickedness. That's the way the evil are described. And God is almost incredulous that they don't understand. Do all the workers of iniquity not know? Do they not know? These people who eat up my people as one eats up bread. Now this image of eating up God's people is given in Micah 3 in verse 3. Micah 3, the heads of Jacob, the rulers of Israel, are described as people who eat the flesh of my people, who strip off their skin, who break their bones, who chop them up for the pot as meat in the kettle. That's a graphic picture of them eating and consuming God's people. But it says they eat my people as one eats up bread. Listen to Proverbs 30, verse 20. It says, This is the way of the adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. What's the idea of that in that passage? Eating is something we do continually. We do it without much thought, with certainly no guilt. And this woman involved in adultery does it with no more concern than she would to eat bread. And it may be that the persecutors of Psalm 14.4 are like the adulterous woman of Proverbs 30.20. They do it casually. They do it continually. And it causes no pangs of conscience. They eat up my people like ones who eat up bread. And they don't call on the Lord. They don't call on the Lord. It is an outrage to the psalmist. We'll we'll look at Psalm 79. I'll illustrate this. Psalm 79. Psalm 79 is a national psalm of lament as the people are going to mourn and grieve that the pe- that they have suffered so. In Psalm 79, verse 6, Pour out your wrath upon the nations who do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. So those nations, those kingdoms that don't call on God's name, Please pour out your wrath on them. But here are a group of people who are eating up His people as they eat up bread, who are doing iniquity or working wickedness, and they don't call on God. But look at what verse 5 says. They are in great dread. And actually the word for dread is used twice here. Um... They are dreading dread or they are fearing fear. Can you imagine what it is going to be like when the person has lived their whole life denying God, mocking God, or maybe simply living as if He never existed? When they come face to face with God. Derek Kidner quoted this from C.S. Lewis. And I thought this was good. In the end, the face 
which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us. Either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I cannot imagine the fear, the overwhelming fear, the paralyzing dread that would fill the heart of the person who has lived as if there is no God when he meets God. They are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord, the Lord is his refuge. Tommy. Yes. I think it's interesting that God is still in their lives. I mean, they're, they're, there's no way to escape. Oh, yes. God. <laughs> That's right. God is still there whether we choose to acknowledge Him or not. Um, and I do think some people declare that they believe there's no God as if that's going to eliminate any consequences of sin. And uh, the fact, what whatever we say about God's existence has no bearing on the subject. Uh, God, God's existence is not dependent upon our acknowledgement or our denial. And so God is present even when we don't want Him to be. He is present. And he says in verse 6, you will put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. And the afflicted seem to be, this word's translated afflicted back in Psalm 12 verse 5. It was also used several times in Psalm 10, uh, translated afflicted there. Sometimes it is translated poor. But the idea is these are people who have no refuge but God. And who are taking refuge in God. That's the same idea in Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is viewed as a poor man who has no refuge but God. And he is fleeing to him for refuge. He has found his refuge in him. And it says, uh, you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores His captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. So, this verse talks about salvation kind of in national terms. We've been thinking maybe in individual terms throughout the psalm, but oh, the salvation of Israel would come. Out of Zion. Zion or Jerusalem is the place of God's salvation. uh, God's deliverance. You remember in Joel 2, uh, 32. uh, A statement quoted in the New Testament. That I am struggling to quote. But Joel 2 and verse 32. The Bible says... Uh, it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be those who escape. So that is the place of escape. That is the place of refuge. That is the place of salvation. I can send you my notes if you want because I've I, I seen some passages. I, I wrote down several passages that emphasize Zion as the place of salvation, as a place of deliverance. And he says, oh, that salvation would come from this place where God dwells, that God would restore His captive people, and that they would rejoice. Um, It is hard to classify this psalm. There are some people that are determined to classify every psalm. And to find some kind of situation in life for every psalm. I think those are impossible uh, pursuits. But one of the things that's interesting about the psalm, there's no confession of sin. 
There is no plea for God's deliverance. There is no praise of God. None of those things that are common elements. What we do find is there is some distinction between the righteous and the wicked. That's typical of wisdom psalms, but this really doesn't really sound like a wisdom psalm because that's not the continual focus. I do think this psalm is to show us ultimately that, well, let's look at Psalm 53 just a second. Let's look at Psalm 53. Psalm 53, and we'll talk more about Psalm 53 when we when we get there, Lord willing, in a few years. <laughs> Let me read Psalm 53. It's really brief. I want you to pay attention to how much it is like Psalm 14. But where does it differ? Where does it differ? Okay. You're detectives. And you're trying to find out a difference between Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Psalm 14, um, Psalm 53's heading is a little bit longer. For the choir director, according to Mahaloth, a mascal of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There's no one who does good. God has looked down from the heavens upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear where no fear had been for God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put to shame, you were, you put them to shame because God had rejected them. Oh, that salvate, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. What's the difference? Between Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. Present past tense is one thing. Okay. That scatters the bones of him who against Okay. And I did not pay careful attention to everything in Psalm 53 about past and present. I know the verbs used in Psalm 14 are perfect verbs which generally refer to completed action in verses 1 through 5 and imperfect which refer to future action often in translation in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 14 but I didn't so I'm, so I, I really can't answer that question that Boyd raised but what Brad said in Psalm 53 is there any parallel to verse 5 of Psalm 53 in Psalm 14. In great fear, in great dread. It does mention in great fear and dread, but there's a fuller statement of judgment on the wicked in Psalm 53. Okay, go back to Psalm 14 and what's unique there. Does Psalm 53 have any equivalent for everything in verses 5 and 6? No. No. It doesn't say that God is with the righteous. It doesn't say God is with the righteous. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, basically the same psalm in many respects. There are other little differences there. Psalm 14 focuses more on the deliverance of the righteous. Psalm 53 focuses more on the judgment of the wicked. Are those two sides... Of the same coin, yes. So you can make the same point drawing from the same data. But Psalm 53 emphasizes more God's judgment on the wicked. Psalm 14 emphasizes God's deliverance of the righteous. That is more the focus. Now, how... Or let's say this passage, Psalm 14, is quoted in the New Testament. Where is it quoted in the New Testament? 
Okay, it's quoted in Romans 3. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And also 53, 1 through 3, is quoted in Romans 3, 10 through 12. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Now let's see how Paul... Let's see a little bit about Paul's use of this. Romans 3, verse 9. Let's see the context. What then? Are we, Jews, better than they, Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written... There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. So, Romans 3, 10 through 12 is quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. By the way, let me tell you an interesting fact. Do you know some versions... Of the Greek Septuagint, of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, have everything from Romans 3, verses 13 through 18, after verse 3. That is believed to be something that Christians later put in the Septuagint because they were familiar with it from the New Testament. But just throwing that out there, okay? Uh, it's usually not regarded as authentic. But this is my key point. What is the point of the use of this passage in the New Testament? The point of the passage in the New Testament is not to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The point is to convict us all. And to say that we have all shared in this sin. Have you ever in your life forgotten that God was God That He is the ultimate reality. And you need to shape or fashion all your life in obedience to God. Have you ever forgotten that? I could ask you if you've forgotten that today. But have you ever forgotten that? Have you ever done something that you knew good and well was wrong but you just totally for a moment lost sight of God and the fact that you would give an account to Him every sin implies that we know better than God and every sin is an indication For that moment, anyway, we loved evil more than good. This psalm not only distinguishes the righteous from the wicked, but it convicts us all. It shows us that we have all followed the path of the fool who have said in our hearts there is no God to whom we have to give an account. I'm not saying that to celebrate it or to be proud of it or to say that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. That should shame us and embarrass us. But as so often the case, The Bible doesn't expose our sin and guilt to leave us there. We have tried to ask the question through these sections. 
How is Jesus seen in this psalm? Well, I want to tell you where you can't see him. You can't see him in verses 1 through 3. Because he never lived as if there was no God. He never forgot for even a moment God and accountability to God. He never did. But I'll tell you what he did. Jesus is an answer to this psalm right after Romans 3 verses 9 through 20 convicts all of us of sin. What does it then go about to do? It presents to us the one who brings forgiveness of sin. The one who brings salvation. In Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has revealed a plan of making us right with Himself. And that plan centers around Jesus Christ and the salvation that He brings via the cross. At the cross, He brings redemption. As verse 24 says, Ephesians 1, 7, through Him we have redemption, even uh, through His blood. Uh, He brings redemption. He is a propitiation. Verse 25, the wrath of God is turned away. By His offering. And we can be right with Him. How does Jesus answer this psalm? One writer said this. If unbelievers understood the nature of the God. Who they are denying in their lives. They would avail themselves. Of His forgiveness and of His righteousness. This God that some of them are consciously trying to remove from their memories and their lives is the God who is willing to receive them back and to forgive them for their transgressions. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious abounding in loving kindness, forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. This God is able to deal with our sin. That is the good news of the gospel. This was... Something I saw that was stated about the book of Genesis, that in a way, all the book of Genesis is about that statement in Genesis 50, verse 20, that Joseph makes to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He said, all the book of Genesis is God bringing salvation out of man's sin, out of man's chaos. But really, that's the story not just of Genesis, but of the Bible, isn't it? That we sin... That we make a mess of everything. And God brings salvation out of it. What else do you have on Psalm Deborah? Um, I was just really struck by the importance of guarding our heart. So like the way it started with the fool who said in his heart. So again, he's 
heard a lie, he's repeated a lie in his heart, he's spoken it in his heart, yes. and all these actions that have come from it, especially when you read the first couple of verses of chapter 15, and it talked about him speaking truth in his heart there, yeah. and just the, the contrast there, the importance of the, the thoughts that we keep going over in our minds and guarding our hearts. Yes, and if this may have been a phrase that even this fool would have dared not say out loud. You know, he may not have said out loud what he is thinking, but he is saying this in his heart. And that was also in Psalm 10, 4, uh, all his thoughts are, there is no God. And in verse, in 10, verse 11, in 10, verse 13, he says certain things to himself. And so, yes, some of these things, we all fight a battle within us with our thoughts, with our desires, and with whether or not we're going to submit to Him and His will. So yes, very good. Thank you. What else do you have? Anything? There might be other aspects where Jesus answers this psalm. But what's more fundamental than that? You understand that we could go on all night just with that. and uh, But we're going to uh, not go on all night with it, but, but pursue the subject. Think about it. And we're going to have a prayer, and then we'll have Brad to lead us in our song. Oh, Lord our God, you are so good to us. We sin and do foolishly. We live in reckless disregard of you. And we're sorry for that. But Lord, we are amazed how when you looked down upon us and you saw none who were seeking you, you sought us. You sought us. You sought to bring us into fellowship with you. You sought to make us right with yourself. You sought us at great expense to yourself, the death of your Son. To you, O God, be all glory. And when that salvation comes, we pray that we may be found in the generation of the righteous. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.